Tap it, tape. Tap it, tape. Tap it, tape. Tap it, tape. Tap it, takes. Hello and welcome to Tepid Takes, the podcast where your high school football team, yes, your high school football team, trains for weeks and weeks during the sweltering summer months, their coach in his last season before his retirement. He doubles as the health and personal development teacher at the school where he teaches the freshman class that girls' periods should last one to three days and that abstinence is the only acceptable form of birth control. But his real passion is this team. These boys are his bright spot, their sweat is his sweat, their victories are his victories, and his voice goes hoarse out on the field more than it used to these days. The season starts off not so good in late August. The team loses their first four games. The marching band gets used to playing You Can Call Me Al and Seven Nation Army to hype up the crowd during timeouts because God knows the crowd at the home games could use a little more Al booster. Coach never gives in, though. He really believes in these boys, and he knows if they can just manage to hit their stride, they can pull an upset that would be a sweet memory to look back on five or ten years down the line when his coaching days are long behind him. Game five approaches, and he cleans the sweat off his glasses before giving the boys a pep talk in the locker room. A couple dozen faces, round and shining with the dregs of childhood, stare up at him. By the end of the talk, a look of resolve has settled into the brows of each of the boys. They huddle up and do that old chant, so settled into Coach's bones that he could speak it in his sleep. But something's different this time. The dank locker room air, laden with six or seven decades of pubescent sweat, feels light and electric. He can feel it. They're really going to get him this time. The team jogs onto the brightly lit field to a smattering of unenthusiastic applause, but they don't let it get to them. By the end of the third quarter, there's no looking back. They've won their first game of the season. Games six, seven, eight, and nine go just as triumphantly. Coach finishes each game with tears in his eyes. Before the homecoming game, he chokes out a small speech about how proud he is of the team and how much he'll miss them next season. They head out onto the field for the last time. It's a close game and Coach is worried, but the team pulls through at the last minute. With one final touchdown just before the final buzzer, the crowd erupts into cheers in a triumphant round of the fight song from the band. Coach has done it. His boys have done it. They crowd him at the sidelines, jumping and shouting at the victory. One boy sneaks up behind him with an orange cooler, and in a moment of visceral shock, Coach feels a waterfall of lukewarm takes raining down upon him. On the walk back up the hill to the school... The night is warm and damp. The sticky take clings his shirt onto his back. He wipes a single tear. It's been a good run, coach. Welcome, one and all, to the long-awaited Tepid Take Sports (laughs) Spectacular. My name's Elisa. Ah, it's so good to be here talking about sports, doing what we love to do, (laughs) which is talking authoritatively about sports. Yeah, I love talking about sports, and so does our special guest today. Would you care to introduce yourself? Um, hi, my name is Matt, um, and I, I I really appreciate being brought on for the very special yeah. sporting edition of Tepid Fakes. Long-time long listener, first-time uh, uh, sports guest. We have um, a verified sports expert in our yeah, midst. Yeah, a real, true fan. Which is a great honor. Yeah. Um, Mia, do you have a mini-take today? Yes, I do. Um, this is one I've been sitting on for a while. Uh, which is that I think, as we all know, Google, massive multi-million dollar corporation, horrible. Um, on the other hand, a very useful search engine. Um, and one of the things they're most notorious for doing is, uh, a couple things. One is they will sponsor search results. They're sponsored search results. So you get 
um, just like more massive million dollar companies just putting their results at the top. And I hate that. And so I think someone needs to come up with a new Google, just called Geagle, where it's like, you remove, it's random. There's no, there's no sponsored results. It's just like a list of results in any order. And I know this already exists, but I think it's like, Geagle needs to exist so that, but people need to jump on the trend of Geagle. And we just need to replace Google with that. Cause I'm, I'm tired of using Google. I'm over it. Also, Yahoo. I- they could also solve that problem by they should bring back the "I'm feeling lucky." Button. Oh my god, I know. The other day I was bored and I had no idea what to do, and I wanted so badly for there to be an "I'm feeling lucky" button, and I there just isn't one. Boo. So that's. I didn't notice it's gone. How long has it been gone? Years, years. Oh. Yeah, but no one notices because all you have to do is type it into the search bar now, and you don't actually have to type in Google.com and then go to. Whatever the internet equivalent of like the storefront of Google is, the web page. Okay. Um, I have a sports-related mini take today, which is that women's tennis has maybe not the most optimal uniforms, but definitely the most fun uniforms. And there is no reason why all other sports shouldn't start wearing tank tops and little skirts and visors. I just want to say something, and it's not really an opinion, but originally, when like. I think honestly, three months ago when we first started talking about doing this episode, I was originally going to do a take about women's golf fashion and then realized I had nothing to say about it because it's just so like middle of the road milk toast. Um, but I have to say, I think second to women's tennis is women's golf. I think women's golf outfits are ugly, but fun ugly. Short skirts, visors, polos. Sure. It's excellent. Um, Matt, do you have a mini take that you would like to share? I know you, we didn't tell you to think of one, but I know that you know a lot about sports, so you might have one just off the cuff. <clears throat> a, a, a mini take off the cuff? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the only... This isn't uh, particularly controversial. Uh, this is a pretty pretty well... Not even one... This is borderline a cold take. Um, but there's a new there's a new rule in the National Football League this year uh, about taunting, um, that it is now illegal to taunt your opponent in celebration. Uh, and it has caused a couple of problems with, uh, referees needing to determine the difference between just genuine human celebration and a malicious taunt. Uh, and there have been some, for example, uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers defense, uh, recorded, I think four turnovers against Chicago Bears quarterback Justin Fields. And after two of them, they all ran into the end zone, sat down in a line as if they were in a canoe and pretended to paddle down the river together in celebration. Um, And this was not ruled a penalty. This was just considered genuine, regular celebration. Um, But then later in the season when the Chicago Bears were playing against the Pittsburgh Steelers, uh, a Bears player recorded a sack and he he did a little like jump uh and the referee ruled that he was intentionally angling his body towards <laughs> the opposing sideline uh which he did rule as a direct and intentional taunt and uh the Chicago Bears were hit with a 15 yard penalty and i am more or less of the opinion that taunting should not only be allowed um 
but actively encouraged. And and rather than penalties, we should actually perhaps give bonus points <laughs> for the nastier Just a really and more good creative taunt. taunts uh, that players can come up with. And that would be that would be my mini take. Bonus points I'd for like good taunting. To say That's hilarious. That two things. One is that first of all, I thought you said haunting and that it is now illegal to haunt the opposite team. And that <laughs> I also thought you said haunting at first. It's like, can you imagine if the next thing in like football was to have like a shaman or like a witch just at the end zone? Like, <laughs> just Do they have a rule about that? Is that illegal? Yeah. Can you curse the other team? And like every football team has just like its own witch or or whatever, really, whatever's local to the area. Just cursing, haunting the other team. Um, yeah. But also, for all we know, in Florida, it's like, there's just people at birthday parties everywhere going like, yeah, it's my birthday, and then sitting down and pretending to row a canoe. So it could actually just be a genuine, you know, someone gets like a promotion in their office, they don't cheer, they just sit down on the ground to pretend to paddle a kayak. So it could just be a cultural way that, <laughs> that is a very great celebrate things. It's a phenomenal uh, celebration. <laughs> I think more people should do it. The next time something good happens to me, I'm going to sit down and pretend to be flying a plane. I'm going to kayak furiously. <laughs> um, I have, um, I thought we could do our advice segment, um, but I didn't ask anyone <laughs> to submit a query for us to help them with because I have my own query, actually. Um, so I was wondering if you guys would help me with my problem. Okay. Which is that um, there is a park that is less than a block away from my house where I live. Also, since the last time our dear listeners heard from us, we have all moved to different states. And we are now adults with jobs, which is part of why it's been so long since you've heard from us. But yeah, so in my new house, there's a park that's less than a block away from my house, and it contains a tennis court, a basketball court, and a baseball diamond. And I want to go play sports Potentially with my roommates, they don't really want to play with me, but I want to go play sports, but I don't have any sports equipment. I don't have balls. I don't have tennis rackets uh, or anything. Um, So I was wondering if you could tell me how can I have fun at the sports park without any sports equipment? Oh, calisthenics? (laughs) Jazz aerobics? Um, Through through various circumstances, I found myself watching a, uh, a, a clip from a recent episode of the children's TV show Bluey, which you know, Lisa may or may not be familiar with in your nannying pursuits. Um, but this particular, particular episode featured uh, a group of main characters playing a game in which they had to traverse from one side of a public park to the other, uh, but they were only allowed to step in uh, parts of the grass covered with shadow. And it was a little, it was a little sort of Flores Lava style game, except except you're just attempting to walk from shadow to shadow. And I'm not gonna lie, this children's cartoon did make that game look fun. That sounds pretty fun. I will try it out. Yeah, unfortunately, I can only think of every elementary school gym teacher I ever had. Their fallback for when they were like hungover or whatever it was just put on a P90X video on the TV and leave. <laughs> are there are there animals at this park um there's like squirrels and stuff and occasionally someone's dog will be there 
Chase oh, and I did, I caught a mouse. Well, my cat caught a mouse in my house and then I um, put it in a Tupperware and I brought it to the park and I released it. So there's at least one mouse. <laughs> Interesting. Because my advice was going to be to do, uh, well, the exact opposite of what you already did, which would not be releasing more animals into the park, but 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 uh, honing your skills with traps and snares. Um, <laughs> they would not have to be lethal ones if you do not like, but I genuinely... I I suspect that you could go from the whatever normal percentile crack into the 99th percentile of all trappers and animal uh, snares in the world with maybe two hours of work. There you go. <laughs> Practice your survival skills. That's a good idea as well. <laughs> just your normal Iowa, or no, uh, just normal people walking around this park seeing you like army crawl by with a knife or like start a fire um would be very funny. <laughs> it would brighten my day that's for sure it would brighten mine as well that sounds very fun well thank you for your advice um do does anyone would anyone like to start um with their take i certainly can just yeah <laughs> sound good i think mine's gonna be the longest sure. so we may as well so i want to talk to you Well, no. As a short introduction, my knowledge of sports, it's there. I don't know. I grew up on the, in like a semi-rural area. People watched sports. I watched sports. I'm really bad, I find, at following sports. Um, And I think particularly team sports, because it involves trying to learn the names of too many people and trying to learn the skill sets of too many people. So I tend to really go for the solo sports. Um, and the two sports I watch in particular, uh, although I haven't for a while, because I, I don't know, it's hard. Because um, now, okay, because now you have to have ESPN Plus or NBC Gold, and it's a whole thing. But I watch a lot of women's artistic gymnastics and figure skating. And today's take, I wanted to take you into the world of women's artistic gymnastics, because in the hallowed halls of the gym internet the small cupboard that sequesters the rabid fanatics of artistic gymnastics from the rest of the internet. There are three words so significant that they have split the gym internet in two. Three words that can spark immediate outrage and a litany of angry tweets and comments. And those words are the wolf turn. The wolf turn is one of the most recognizable and performed skills in women's artistic gymnastics today. And it's essentially a turn performed in a squatting position with one leg extended out to the side. And it's found in the floor exercise and balance beam routines. So, incidentally, the wolf turn is one of the more storied elements in women's gymnastics. It was first performed by the gymnast Natalia Kuchinskaya in the 1966 World Championships. And in the 60s and 70s, the wolf turn was meant to demonstrate uh, a gymnast's control and was typically only performed uh, with a single revolution. After this period, wolf turns fell out of favor in women's artistic gymnastics, but it continued in women's rhythmic gymnastics. And in the 2010s, it was picked up again by women's artistic gymnastics and made a comeback. And the current iteration of the wolf turn involves gymnasts praying to the Lord Jesus, hurling their legs around, and flailing their arms about in the hopes that they make it all the way around. That is to say, 
The wolf turn is so divisive because it is super ugly. And that is not just my opinion. Uh, one of the more reliable sources for gymnastics news and commentary, the balance beam situation, describes the double wolf turn thusly. A universally loathed hellish cry for help that usually looks like the death throes of a remote control helicopter before it runs out of batteries. The double wolf turn is valued at D. That's its only personality trait. The rest is garbage, and as long as it receives a value that high, it is far too precious to disappear. For many gymnasts, especially the flexibility no-no ones, the wolf turn double is the most realistic D dance element possible on the beam. You've got to do it. So, now to understand why, uh, despite being so reviled, the wolf turn is so popular, um, we just need to make a very quick detour into gymnastics scoring to explain that gymnastics scores combine a difficulty score with an execution score. And the difficulty score for the wolf turn is really, really high. So even if your execution score is kind of meh, it's still worth doing. Therefore, the wolf turn is unfortunately even more ubiquitous than it is ugly. And the list of gymnasts that perform it in a routine, either on beam or floor, is very, very long. Now, as if subjecting the audience to one wolf turn wasn't cruel enough, uh, double wolf turns and triple wolf turns are considered separate dance elements, so you can perform both in one routine, which has led to the popularization of something called the back-to-back -back wolf turns, where the audience is forced to watch as the gymnast narrowly avoids falling while looking like Jackie Chan in the 1978 movie Drunken Fist, uh, as well as a complete jackass, one time, uh, only to do it all over again. And while the gym turnet is a little split on whether or not the wolf turn is a horrible thing, uh, they are not split about back-to-back uh, -back wolf turns. Back-to-back -back wolf turns are universally hated. Uh, and I have the tweets to back it up. Now, I would like to take a quick detour, and I would hope everyone listening would as well. Uh, and I'd like to go to YouTube. I would like you, the listener, just drop whatever you're doing and go to YouTube. It'd go to the YouTube search bar and type in the words, Wolf Turns Being a Mess for two minutes. And watch that video because we are going to take a break and probably go undergo a lot of technical difficulties right now to watch that video. This is bananas. <laughs> I'm assuming this is, it's the video called Wolf Turns Being a Mess for a minute straight. <laughs> Yes. What makes this turn so hard? So, the reason why the wolf turn is difficult is just because it's it takes a massive amount of strength to do it. I mean, it's like a really it's a really weird position to be in. Um, it's like I think it's the only turn that you do squatting, and then it's made harder because your center of balance is really whack because your leg is out. Um, so it's really hard, as you can see. In the video I mentioned, it's really hard to get the whole way around, which is why it is so difficult, and it's why it kind of deserves that difficulty score. But I think the unanticipated consequence is that everyone does it, because in order to be competitive, this is one of the most high-scoring dance elements you can do. So now you know, hopefully, you understand what a wolf turn looks like, uh, albeit only when it goes wrong. 
However, you're not missing out much, because even when it goes right, that is still pretty much what it looks like. But I do this take today to inform you that at long last, the powers that be have heard our puny complaints and have responded by changing the gymnastics code of points for 2022 through 2024. So though the difficulty score of a wolf turn has not been downgraded, the new code of points states that a gymnast may only use a maximum of one wolf turn per routine. For many, this is a milestone, a marker of athletic progress and change. But for others, discouraged that the turns have not been eliminated entirely, the fight wages on. And that is my take. Any comments? Any thoughts? Um, that video was ridiculous. It's very funny. And I think, potent- wait, so, so what exactly, your take is that you're, you hate them? Yeah. What do, what's your plan of action? You know, I just wanted to bring this piece of information to the general public. I am definitely in the camp that kind of wishes they would just be eliminated altogether. <sighs> just keep tweeting about it, I guess, is the plan of action. But I just wanted um, to My inform. opinion, yeah, I appreciate you informing me of this. And my take on it is that I think they should keep doing them because they're funny. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I... I think part of the problem with it, because I know in the video, uh, even the goat herself, Simone Biles, is is does not look particularly goat-like as she attempts <laughs> this move. I feel like for something to be truly so infamous, I'd want it to be associated very specifically with one athlete. Like I think it uh, was Surya Bonali who could do the backflip. Yeah. Um, and it was like a super controversial move, but only one person could do it. Uh, and I mean, I think you think in other sports, like in, in, in football, for three, you know, it's been six, seven years since Odell Beckham Jr. made a rather impressive one-handed catch uh, in prime time. And still, players can't make a catch with one hand without somebody uh, saying, wow, well, hey, he showed off his best Odell Beckham impression there. I think these... These special moves are always more fun when there's an identity link to it, which either means somebody needs to actually get really good at them uh, and become the only person in the world who can do them well, or they have to completely remove the limitations on how many you can do them, and we need somebody to step up onto the beam and do an entire routine that is comprised of nothing but like nine (laughs) wolf turns in a row, and then they become known as the wolf turn gymnast that would be very funny a joke about the dutch weber's sisters that i can't put together right now which is also only funny to anyone that watches gymnastics no yeah and (laughs) what i didn't it's just like i just remember one of the most infuriating parts of the 2012 olympics this is just not even about anything anymore um being that uh a bunch of people did acrobatic skills on the beam because they hadn't changed a they changed the code of points after this. Um, and then just Sana Wevers, who's like a nether, like a gymnast from the Netherlands, did a routine that was like only just turns, basically. And at the time, you could do that. And she she won. And I was, at the time, I was like, what the hell? And now I'm okay with it. I've made my peace. Um, yeah, I just also, I don't know if that video included it. I don't think it does. But there was a moment in maybe like the 2016 american cup or something where gymnast jordan childs from the u.s like does a wolf turn 
and fails and so she stands all the way up and her leg goes up into like a Y shape or something and she does like a Y turn and they actually had to score it even higher because like technically that was a harder turn even though it was just a mistake um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's infamous and so that's an unrelated anecdote. Well, no, it is a related anecdote because she started out doing a wolf turn, but it was so bad, but she saved it. You know, I don't know. I think every sport just has these things. Um, so yeah. Ooh. Well, great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for introducing us to this topic. Yeah. Who would like to go next? Can I, can I try my take? Yeah, let's go. Uh-huh. Um, for my take, we're also sticking with the Olympics uh, because I believe when this episode was originally pitched to me, the Olympics were still going on in August. It's been a while. Um, (laughs) Yeah. My uh, take that I have to present to you is that the Olympics and sporting in general needs more um, athlons. We need uh, more multi-sport disciplines. Um, Of course, we are all very familiar with a standard triathlon, uh, swimming, biking, and running, um, and I would say most people would be also familiar with the Olympic decathlon, uh, comprised of four running events, six track events, the 100-meter sprint, 110-meter hurdles, 400-meter run, 1500-meter run, long jump, high jump, shot put, discus, javelin, and pole vault. However, there are more than that. Um, there is also apparently, uh, there's a race called a duathlon, which is just a triathlon minus the swimming, um, which I think is kind kind of lame <laughs> um uh there is something called an which is a 20 event competition that takes place over two days um and includes uh on day one the 100 meters the long jump the 200 meter hurdle the shot put the 500 meter run a one hour pause which is very important in the rules for the icosathlon it does state that every event does need to include two one hour pauses uh one per day Uh, And then after your one-hour pause, the 800-meter run, the high jump, the 400 meters, the hammer throw, the 300-meter steeplechase, the 110-meter hurdles, the discus throw, 200 meters, pole vault, 300 meters, one-hour pause, 400-meter hurdles, javelin throw, 150 meters, triple jump, 10,000-meter run. Uh, Is this all one person doing these things just one after the other? (laughs) Yes. That's insane. (laughs) The Icosathlon is considered by many to be the most physically demanding sporting event in the world uh although i think if you really want to claim that title you have to get rid of those two hour long pauses <laughs> Come on. Yeah. but what i'm interested to talk about today are two of the more interesting multi-sport disciplines uh one of them in particular both of which have their histories in military disciplines uh if you are a fan of the winter olympics you are probably familiar with the biathlon event uh which is a single race that combines cross-country skiing and uh, rifle shooting. Uh, Contestants must ski with a rifle slung over their back uh, until they reach a designated shooting zone where then they must hit five targets with their rifle for every target that they miss. They must then do an additional lap around a small penalty track before they can continue their race. First person to finish the entire track wins. Its history comes... uh, from the Norwegian uh, armed forces who used to have a training competition uh, in which contestants would have to hit targets 
while skiing downhill at full <laughs> speed, which I think is significantly cooler <laughs> than the version that we are left with today. I'm not really sure who decided. If you're going to be skiing with guns, I don't know who said, well, we should probably uh, make them stop skiing before they pull out the guns. I think hitting a target while moving downhill would be a much more entertaining sport, which is why the biathlon was relegated uh, to the secondary event I want to talk about today, because the one I really want to speak about is the modern pentathlon. Uh, pentathlon, of course, referring to five events, and it is known as the modern pentathlon to differentiate it from the pentathlon that existed in the original Olympics in ancient Greece. That pentathlon comprised of five events, running, wrestling, discus, javelin, and the long jump. And the whole idea behind the original pentathlon was it was designed to test the skills that a soldier would need to uh, successfully defend some sort of fortification, um, which makes sense. You got to be able to run. You got to be able to wrestle. You got to be able to throw pointy and heavy things. I'm not entirely sure how the long jump applies, but I'll let it slide. Uh, <laughs> and then in the year 1912, um, members of the Olympic Committee were looking for a new pentathlon which would honor the same spirit of testing skills that a soldier would need in specific circumstances, but under a more modern setting. And what they came up with was a multi-sport event designed to test all of the skills that a soldier would require to escape back home from being trapped behind enemy lines. The events that they chose were a 200-meter swim, a fencing tournament, a show-jumping equestrian competition, yeah. <laughs> a pistol-shooting contest, and then a running race. <laughs> yeah. Uh, That's very With modern. the theory being that one would need to run fast, uh, potentially swim, engage an enemy with both sword and, uh, and gun, and ride an unfamiliar horse. And the unfamiliar <laughs> phrase is very important there, which I will get to in a moment. Um, the event was founded, uh, first used in the Olympics in 1912, um, to, uh, wild success. It has been a part of the Olympics ever since. Uh, there was no women's pentathlon until the year 2000. Uh, it was a very long time before they allowed women to participate in this most incredible of Olympic skills. And its format has changed a little bit. It used to be a full five-day event where every event would take place separately on its own day. It has since been condensed into a single-day format uh, to make a better viewing experience. Um, most of, with most uh, versions in the Olympics, starting out with the fencing tournament. And the way that they do fencing in the pentathlon is fascinating to me. The matches are only one minute long, and the first person to score a single point wins. Yeah. Um, and every contestant has to play every other contestant in a round-robin, one-minute-long sequence uh, with you being scored in your overall record. Um, to be considered adequate, you have to win about 70% of your matches. So for most of these contestants in an Olympic setting, you would be doing uh, 35 one-minute-long fencing matches against 35 separate opponents, followed by a 200-meter swim, which is not done based upon who comes in first, second, third, or fourth, but rather... Uh, it is scored based on if you swim precisely in two minutes and 30 seconds, you earn a thousand points. Uh, for every second over that, you are deducted 
12 points, and for every second under that, you earn an extra 12 points. So <clears throat> it is entirely based on your own speed, has nothing to do with the speed of the field around you. Uh, at which point we are brought to the equestrian's show jumping. And here, the whole point is to test your ability to ride a horse that you are unfamiliar with. So the organizers of each event will select a pool of horses, which they themselves will test to determine that they are capable of completing the course. And then 20 minutes before the competition, each contestant will be randomly paired with a horse. They have 20 minutes <laughs> to get to know that horse. Speed dating. Uh, though they are only allowed to... Can you imagine? <laughs> it, is, it is horse speed dating. They are only allowed <laughs> to attempt five jumps with the horse during that uh, familiarization period. All of the rest must just be spent becoming comfortable with your animal. And then you have to compete with this horse in a show jumping track. And the result is some of the most unintendedly hilarious moments I've ever seen <laughs> in Olympic <laughs> footage. Because most of these people, they are true athletes. They're good swimmers. They're good runners. I'm sure they're fine fencers. Many of them are not equestrians. Many of them are not really trained in horseback riding. Um, I will send you along a video uh, of one of of some of the riders in uh, in the most recent Olympics. Um, I encourage any listeners uh, to go and try and find Olympic footage of the pentathlon equestrian competition. Um, it, it is one hard to find. I believe the Olympic Committee is intentionally burying this footage because they do not like the way it paints their Olympians. Um, but two, truly, these are Olympic athletes. These are people at the highest physical level of accomplishment that a human being can achieve, being thrown off of their horses into fences more than once per run. It is one of the finest displays of modern sports comedy I think anybody can find. And I do encourage anyone to look it up. But of course, it has remained a part of this competition because it is tradition. Uh, once again, it is scored on a crazy system where there's a minimum number of points, uh, minimum level of competency, uh, which is scored with a certain number of points. If you're any worse than that, you lose points. If you're any better, you gain them. All designed to compile one final standings uh, of points after the swimming, the fencing, and the riding, which are then used to stagger start runners on the final event, which is the laser shot run, uh, which, much like the biathlon, involves running around a track and stopping a certain shooting points to hit targets with a laser pistol. And the first person across the finish line wins. Now, there's obviously a tremendous amount of inherent beauty in this sport, there's no doubt. Uh, that it is as fair a representation of a human being's athletic skill as really one could find. However, in the most recent Olympics, the world of the pentathlon was embroiled in a terrible scandal which is threatening to shake the very future of the sport as a whole. Um, going, into, going into the women's equestrian riding portion of the modern pentathlon at the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games. Uh, Annika Schul uh, of Germany was in first place after the fencing and after the swimming. She was randomly assigned to the horse known as Saint Boy. Uh, and as the person in first place, she was going to be riding last. 
which was a disadvantage because some uh, there is not one horse per rider. Most of the horses will be assigned to two riders. Saint Boy had already been ridden that day, had already underperformed, and by the time Annika mounted her horse, Saint Boy was really not in the mood to be participating <laughs> anymore. Um, Annika immediately began to cry atop of her horse, realizing the disadvantage she was in when she could not get Saint Boy to even walk towards the starting gate. Uh, he kept backpedaling towards the track, where then Annika's coach, Kim Raisner, approached the horse from behind and seemed to give him a little pat on the behind to spur him into action. Eventually, Annika was able to convince St. Boy to ride, um, who promptly ran into most of the obstacles on the course and threw Annika from his back uh, twice. <laughs> resulting in her uh, not earning enough points to even be allowed to continue in the competition. She, going into the question, was in first place. She would end up finishing the overall competition in 31st out of 36 uh, as one of the six people who were disqualified after the equestrians for not even being able to finish. Following this incident, the IUMP, no, IUPM, the Union Internationale de Pentathlon Moderna, the governing body of, Penta- of modern pentathlon, launched an investigation and deemed that Kim Reisner had physically assaulted the horse when she walked over to give it a pat on the behind. The headlines all read, German coach punches horse in the middle <laughs> of competition. Kim Reisner was disqualified from competing at the Olympics. Uh, she had to go through coaching re-education to enable to reinstate her as an official pentathlon coach. And the Olympic Committee has announced that following the Kim Reisner incident, they are removing the equestrian portion of the pentathlon for all future modern Olympic Games. They will be replacing it with a yet unknown event. Uh, So we have already seen the very last competition of the modern pentathlon. The equestrian portion is no more the next time you see it in 2024 there will be some other new event tucked in there and my take here is quite simple um justice for annika justice for kim and justice for saint boy you can watch the video that was not a punch i don't care what anybody says that was not a punch and sure is it fair to force a rider uh, to force a horse to compete with an unknown rider uh probably not fair to the horse but please don't destroy the one part of this sport that truly makes it stand out from everything else what other olympic game incorporates an element of chance what other olympic game incorporates an element of randomness in what other olympic sport imagine if before a swimming event all the swimmers had to reach their hand into a bag and pull out what swimsuit they were going to (laughs) wear or if a pole vaulter had to determine uh by random draw whether they would get a normal pole vault or a snake. Or perhaps one made of bamboo, or perhaps a gigantic slinky. <laughs> this is what makes the pentathlon so beautiful. There is an element that is out of your hands. There is a true human element here that you have 20 minutes where you have to bond with a strange animal for the gold medal. And I think it's a travesty that they would remove the one thing that truly sets this event apart from the rest. I want to read a quote uh, from the man who first conceived of the modern pentathlon. He said the design was, it was to test a man's moral qualities as much as his physical resources and skills, producing thereby the ideal 
complete athlete. I simply don't know how you can claim that this sport still accomplishes that when you remove the equestrian portion. That's <laughs> so tragic. Um, I also did uh, briefly prepare um, uh, if the modern pentathlon is no more, um, I prepared a selection of alternative uh, multi-discipline events um, I was going to ask if we like could talk see. about that. Um, and uh, it's a little bit uh, designed as a game um, in which I would read the list of events um, and I would like to see if you could guess what the unifying theme uh, behind this multidiscipline event would be. Um, yes, right. absolutely. So, for example, the inspiration partially comes from uh, a T-shirt I owned as a child after a visit to San Francisco and uh, the museum store at the Alcatraz prison. Um, the T-shirt <laughs> said, uh, Athleticism Alcatraz, but it was misspelled. All it said was athletism. Um, and then there was a little... Three little drawings. Uh, it said event one, digging. Event two, running. Event three, swimming. The idea being uh, that this was a triathlon designed to help you escape from the Alcatraz prison. Uh, so in that yeah. theme, I present uh, my first themed tri uh, triathlon, mm -hmm. which would be uh, first a shooting competition, followed by a fencing competition, followed by an open water sailing race. Wait, can you repeat the first one? Shooting, fencing, open water sailing. Okay, my guess is pirate pirate competition. Yeah. The the, the winner here would yes indeed receive a gold medal in piracy. Um, that was <laughs> should an we easy should one. we buzz in? Uh, should we be buzzing in? Should we do a hand raise? For oh, fairness' sake. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. <laughs> okay. Um, I feel like I kind of stole piracy there. Okay. Uh, the next one is a pentathlon. Um, tennis, boxing, a bowling competition, golf, and a baseball game. Is this just we pentathlon? <laughs> yeah, this 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 is indeed uh, a pentathlon just comprised of the sports you could find in the original Wii Sports uh, from 2007. Oh um, my god. <laughs> uh, this next one's a quick one. Uh, this is a biathlon. Um, a, uh, a traditional marathon, followed by a ping pong tournament. <laughs> is this just like when nothing. someone breaks out of prison and then has uh, a ping pong game later that day? Is this a very specific personal experience that we don't know about? Uh, no, these are just things that Forrest Gump was good at. <laughs> uh. um, here's This one's a full decathlon, um, starting with, or including basketball. Figure skating, breakdancing, equestrian riding, surfing, wrestling, snowboarding, BMX racing, swimming, and taekwondo. Elisa. Is it stuff that makes you really cool? Um, close. Uh, these are all sports which were heavily featured in a Disney Channel original movie. Mm. Um, and <laughs> this would be the Disney Decathlon. Ah. Uh, each of these sports did get their own very special disney channel original movie and through this research i found there have been like seven decoms all about basketball it's a little bit ridiculous what's the taekwondo uh, one what was the uh so that one i sort of cheated uh i counted wendy Wu homecoming warrior as a martial <laughs> arts movie um and chose taekwondo specifically because uh 
Brenda Song herself is a black belt in Taekwondo. Are you counting um, each individual High School Musical one one through three as its own basketball movie? Uh, for this, I am not. Although that might come up later. Okay. Um, <laughs> rolling right along into the really weird ones. Uh, this is a pentathlon involving five events: sand surfing, extreme jacks, jousting. Cycling through an industrial park and finding the hay in a needle stack. <laughs> um, which, if you're not familiar, were the five activities that uh, SpongeBob SquarePants and Sandy Cheeks participated in in anticipation of Sandy's um, hibernation. Um, <laughs> moving right along, we have a multidiscipline event that involves swimming, cycling, hiking, camping, first aid, cooking, personal fitness, citizenship in the community, environmental sustainability, citizenship in the nation, personal management, family life, citizenship in the world, communication, emergency preparedness, and saving a human life. Girl Scouts. Uh, Girl Scouts. Yeah. Is it Girl Scouts? Uh, yeah. These are Eagle the uh, required merit badges to earn your Eagle Scout. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for our next one, we have um, a competition involving uh, – Interview skills, presentation skills, written and verbal communication skills, strategic thinking, embracing constructive feedback, balancing priorities, having a scrappy entrepreneurial spirit, and partnering closely across teams and departments to create and distribute the most impactful communications possible. <laughs> yeah. I don't entirely know what this is, but I'm hoping to God it's just like the things that Goldman Sachs wants its employees to do or something. <laughs> um, yeah, these are just the required skills listed uh, to apply for podcast host on indeed.com <laughs> um and then f- finally uh and my personal favorite the one that i g- legitimately believe should be incorporated into the olympics um it is a simple triathlon involving uh basketball baseball and golf that's high school musical tebow uh these these would be the the sports heavily featured in high school musical too <laughs> High School Musical 2 Triathlon. Um, and that uh, that will conclude my take. Excellent work. Really enjoyed that. Um, I personally think that the logical follow-up to the equestrian portion of the pentathlon is, since it was originally about prison break, why not, well, you know, you're not going to really ride horses away from prison, so why not make it like an unfamiliar vehicle challenge where you don't know what you'll get? It could be a tandem bicycle, it could be a motorcycle, it could be an 18-wheeler, or it could be a car that drives manual, and you would not know how to deal with it. Or like a golf caddy. That'd be good. That's a good idea. I was thinking about what they could replace the equestrian portion with, and I was thinking about, like... Yeah, like vehicle, like a bike riding portion or something. But the issue with that is that what's so great about the horses is that the horse can decide to screw you over. The horse can decide that decide that it hates you, <laughs> and then you lose because of that. And that's not something well, that you can do with like. I mean, I guess if you get a unicycle, that, it kind of like. Yeah, getting one of those giant unicycles that's like twenty feet in diameter, kind of. It's somewhat similar. It's not as good. Yeah. I mean, they could just make it completely really, random. Like, a sentient being is the only just, thing that's exactly the same, but, but yeah, random vehicle is a good a good substitute, I think. What if, because the other part of this is, again, it's, uh, I think part of the beauty of the horse is that it also tests your ability to form 
a quick and lasting bond with an animal. Um, what if they simply replaced it with the third event is uh, there's just a guy and each person has 10 minutes to convince that person why they should be the one to win the gold medal. Speed dating. And then at the end, the dude just ranks everybody 1 to 36 based on how much Olympic he liked them. Speed dating? That's good. It could also be a dog thing. It could be like you have to play... You could you could have to play fetch with a dog or something. Or perhaps the third event in the pentathlon is everyone just has to compete on one full season of Survivor. <laughs> and then you move on to the running. Here's what I feel about a lot of these things. It's like they're trying to mimic the experience that you would do kind of in the real world where you would have an actual goal. And I kind of wish they would bring that goal back because I found myself thinking about like... For example, Love Island, where you have to do the tasks, but ultimately it's because you want to snog someone. Well, what if you had to rescue, like, a person and then befriend them on the way back? And then they could give you, like, a friendship score or something. But I I also wanted to bring up that um, in the inventor of the modern Olympic movement, they had trial Olympics in the 1900s, and actually... uh, I do recall it it, it involved uh, Olympic poetry, actually, and, like, Olympic writing and Olympic painting, and I think Olympic poodle shearing. So, they could bring back one of those. It would, I would watch Pentathlon with a poodle shearing component. <laughs> it's like how they added the A to STEM, so now it's STEAM, um, to include the arts. They should start including the arts in the Olympics. And one of them is just how well can you do a, a marble sculpture of yourself? <laughs> what if they gave, what if they only had like five minutes? <laughs> <laughs> Speed sculpting. Yeah. I would watch Me that. Me too. I would certainly. I also uh, I would like to point out that I think the reason they probably made the fi- the targets fixed in the biathlon is they wanted it to be a spectator sport. And I don't think you can do that when there's a pretty significant risk of the spectators getting shot as the competitors mm. hurtle down a hill and try to shoot simultaneously. It is That's significantly fair. more dangerous, but also significantly less cool. It is less cool. Yeah. What if, uh, what if you put all the targets way up high? Like all the targets are just big balloons yeah. filled with <laughs> confetti, so there's a really nice visual pop when they get hit, like a. Like the only good version of a of a gender reveal birthday party. <laughs> how many balloons would that take? I don't know. It would take a lot, but I mean, you've read the stats of how many condoms they already provide for the Olympic Village. I mean, it's just more latex. They've got. They could budget it. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um. All right. Shall I do my take? Yeah. Yes. My take might be a little bit of a downer. Um, I got a little philosophical with it. But since I don't know, I don't know that much about sports or any sport in particular more than any other sport. I have never really watched sports. I watched the NBA finals for the first time ever um, <laughs> earlier this year. It was very fun, but that's the only time I've ever watched sports. Um, so I wanted to get a little bit um, a little bit existential about the idea of sports in general and specifically sports spectatorship as it applies to like classic American sports like football, basketball, 
etc and even like you know world consumption of like soccer and stuff um just in the traditional way of of how men sit and watch sports i'm going to talk about that and i have nothing against the idea of men sitting and watching sports um and i think there are deeper ways that you can participate in and relate to um sports culture these are just my opinions and not even all of them are my opinions they're just musings so i want to talk about the Nathan's hot dog eating contest and the idea of sports spectatorship. And this is more of an essay. It's heavily scripted. <laughs> Picture, if you will, Coney Island on July 4th. A crowd gathers buzzing with excitement. A line of men stand behind a table, each eyeing a towering pile of Nathan's famous hot dogs and buns. When the buzzer sounds, ten minutes of raucous consumption begins. The crowd cheers on Takeru the Tsunami, Kobayashi, Eric Badlands Booker, Joey Jaws Chestnut, and a dozen other competitors as they wolf down dozens upon dozens of hot dogs, some jumping and stroking their throats to ease down the minimally chewed sausages, some dipping the buns in water until they're soaked through to maximize the amount of buns one man can get down with only one man's limited supply of saliva. The audience dons hot dog-shaped hats and cheers with each drop of hot dog-scented sweat that drips down the competitors' faces. When the ten minutes are up, the victor is crowned, and the crowd chants their name as the sun beats down on hundreds of star-spangled, all-American bodies united in this moment of fandom. Now envision, if you are so inclined, this same event in the summer of 2020. A raging pandemic has descended upon the world, one that hardly anyone fully understands, even after several months of torment. The Nathan's Famous Corporation team has struggled to find a safe way to continue this time-honored American tradition. The solution they've settled upon has only the top five competitors, rather than the usual 15, each fidgeting inside their own personal plexiglass box, like so many hot dog-eating zoo animals. If this were a day at the zoo, though, it would certainly be a slow one. They've decided to hold the competition without an audience. Aside from the voices of the two commentators over the loudspeaker and the sounds of desperate chewing, swallowing, and heavy breathing, Coney Island is eerily quiet. The commentator's voice rings out through open space as he commends Joey Chestnut, or the Glizzy Gladiator as he refers to him, on how valiantly he's choking down his 70th sausage and its mushy waterlogged bun. When it comes time to declare Joey his lucky 13th contest win, 75 hot dogs, he's bested his previous year's world record by four. Only his rivals and the carnival barker judge are there to congratulate and applaud for him. If we view the Nathan's famous hot dog eating contest as a microcosm of sport, one thing becomes glaringly clear. Sport does not exist without spectatorship. A football game without an audience is just a fun game of catch. A round of basketball with no one there to see it is just a fun round of shooting hoops with the boys. And a hot dog eating contest with nobody around to witness Joey Chestnut's 13th victory is just one sad man standing in a park, wolfing down 75 hot dogs in a row as fast as humanly possible. Now what exactly is sports spectatorship? One could take the public's enjoyment of the Nathan's hot dog eating contest as an example of the people's morbid curiosity towards human suffering. There certainly is an element of schadenfreude to most sports spectatorship, as almost, if not all spectator sports, always have a loser. Even solo sports like Olympic running have losers, and even if it was just one person out on the track, you're still watching them put their body through a kind of hell for the sake of glory and accolades. 
When the three of us went to trivia night and they were playing baseball on the bar televisions, the one moment of the game when everyone's eyes were glued to the screen was when the pitcher got hit in the face with the ball he had thrown himself just a split second earlier. That bloody towel was a focal point for our whole table, none of whom had been paying attention to the rest of the game. Modern-day sports have to fill a niche that opened up when society at large became less accepting of the pure, unveiled, and widespread enjoyment of human suffering. The kingdom's eyes can't drink up the gladiator desperately avoiding being eaten by the lion, the matador gored by the bull anymore, and so instead the hungry masses turn toward the concussed footballer, the pitcher with the broken cheekbone, Joey Chestnut scarfing down hot dogs until he's sick, the competitor turning against himself, the sportsman devouring himself from the outside in. You could argue that sport has never been about the winners. It's about sacrifice and the blood spilled on the field. Through kinder eyes, though, sports spectatorship isn't only about rabid schadenfreude. We could criticize sports fans for the relatively baseless hatred they often foster towards each other on the basis of geography and the different colors of shirts they prefer to wear to games. This is a loyalty and consequent hatred that at best results in snide yet joking comments to a stranger wearing your opposing team's jersey in Walmart, and at the worst leads to violent riots and lost lives. But more often, the experience that sports fans are chasing is one of community, togetherness, and mutual joy. Empathy in sport doesn't just apply to the athletes on the team, but also to the spectators in the crowd, voices joining together for the song they all know, arms linking with familiar strangers, finding togetherness in a family without blood relation. I've seen a good amount of discussion in online spaces recently, sparked by an artwork by photographer Barbara Kruger, with a text that reads, You create intricate rituals which allow you to touch the skin of other men about how men created wrestling so they would have an excuse to touch each other. Men invented golf because they were too scared to ask each other to go on walks, and similar sentiments. It's undeniable that sports fandom is a male-dominated pastime, and I think there's a fairly easy explanation for why. I'm going to be making some generalizations here, but I think they have some merit, so stick with me. The way our society is structured currently, straight men are pretty much allowed one or two personality traits that usually revolve around a hobby or interest. Sports are one of the most popular masculine interests, and I think it's because they provide an outlet for the emotionality that straight men are otherwise not allowed to express. In a beautiful moment, Giannis Antetokounmpo cried after scoring 50 points in a single game and leading the Bucks to victory in the NBA Finals this year. A man who would never cry otherwise can cry when his favorite team wins the World Series. Two male friends who never share their true feelings with each other for fear of coming, coming across as too feminine can have a moment of shared emotional bliss when watching their team score a touchdown. The kind of emotional connection that people would ordinarily experience during a good conversation with a friend is often denied to straight men, and so they seek it out in sports fandom. It's great that sports can afford men this opportunity, but I also think that the frustration they must feel subconsciously at not being able to express that level of care and joy in other avenues of their lives comes out in the form of bitter rivalries and hatred for anyone not in their same in-group that experiences that emotional closeness in tandem with them. Sports spectatorship is a complex pastime that frequently goes unchecked and unquestioned. Sport is one of the only activities, and probably the safest of the few that there are, that provides an outlet for men's literal blood, sweat, and tears, both for the direct participants and for the spectators. It can be violent, unpleasant, and unnecessarily competitive, but until men can be allowed to experience emotional intimacy through less veiled means, until they learn to stop policing each other for the desire to share the burdens of anger and joy and vulnerability, sports allegiance might be the best outlet they can access. And that is my take.
I like it. I do too. I had forgotten about that. I do think it's like there's something. Yeah, I think it's like it's something very specific about like why is it not just good enough to play the game? Why do we have to have like a competition? Like why is it not enough for people just to like have practice? But it's also not just sports. Like in every single thing, it's like why is it not enough to just rehearse? Why do we have to have the performance? Right? It's like I don't know. I don't really, <laughs> really know. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Like there is, we have a big obsession with being the best and winning, and it probably has something to do with capitalism <laughs> at its root. I also think it's just like, it's one of those things where it's like once you've experienced kind of a situation in which you, uh, however you want to do it, kind of artificially make the stakes really high. And then it's like you keep wanting that because I think it's like people enjoy feeling that kind of emotional rush. Like that's the difference. <laughs> All I could tell between the difference of like when you're preparing for something versus when you're quote unquote doing that thing is like when you're preparing for it, you're calm. It's like normal. But then when you're doing it, suddenly you're nervous and suddenly the stakes are high and suddenly you're sweating. And if you do well, you feel great about it. And if you do horrible, you feel horribly. Whereas when you're practicing, if you do badly, it's whatever. And I think that's what it is. It's just like we want these events where if we put all the pressure on that, it's like test matches versus the real thing. Like, I guess you watch a test match and it's like, well, okay, but then when the real thing happens, then you feel, you put more importance on it and you feel more. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it exactly. But then again, we're not consummate sports fans. And that's why mm-hmm. we've brought on a real fan to talk about his experience. Yeah, I would love to. I did uh, make a lot of accusations about straight men. Um, <laughs> so I'd like to, you know, if you have any thoughts as a resident straight man. Defend your kind. Um, I thought it's funny as you were talking um, because my my mind went to two conversations. One that I had a while ago, one that I had very recently. Um, the first was uh, someone was like, I, me and a friend had just met this other guy. It was a social thing. I was with one friend and we met this new other dude for the first time. Um, and me and this stranger immediately began, uh, talking about sports, but in a very like, Oh, did you see the game? Yeah. Real cool game. That was real neat. Like, like (laughs) small talking. Um, and the friend who I was with afterwards, who is not a very big sports fan was asking me, he's like, was that like, a fun conversation for you. Um, And I I said, no, but it's truly like the like safest, most non-threatening conversation. I feel like I can have with another guy where it's like, you meet somebody and it's like, man, I don't know. I have no idea if we get along. I have no idea anything about you. Uh, But if, but we can talk about sports for a little bit and nothing about each other's hobbies, interests, per- we don't have to reveal anything about who we really are as people and we will walk away from that encounter being like, I like that guy. Um, 
And so it's like the most, like you don't threaten anything. There is nothing you could say to another person about sports that would actually make them judge you as a person. Uh, even if you hate, even if your teams are rivals, it's not like, oh, I actually dislike that. In fact, you probably would like them more because it's now you have an actual like personal connection. The, the moments in your life that had, that stand out to you as, as emotionally impactful were probably also emotionally impactful for him in the opposite direction. Um, it's just, it's a guaranteed, easy interaction. And I think about that in contrast with a conversation I had with one of my very, very close friends recently. Um, he uh, was, has been my best friend maybe since first grade. Um, we've known each other our entire lives. Uh, obviously, he went up to school in Canada. Obviously, when we went away to college, we didn't talk as much. Um, but whenever I was home, we would see each other. Uh, we would chat, all of that stuff. Um, a... Uh, a little over a year ago, his father passed away from cancer, um, and it was very difficult, uh, very sad. Um, you know, I and uh, I expressed my condolences to him in a way that, at the time, I thought was like, "Well, I don't want to be like, you know, overbear." I'll just say, "Hey, I'm really sorry. I'm here if you need to talk." Um, but that was really it. He didn't ever reach out to talk. Um, and, uh, in a weird way, I felt like our conversations after that felt a little like stilted. Like we would sort of check in like, Hey, how you been? Oh, you know, good. But like, there was never any real, like, how have you been since this really tragic thing happened? Like how we never talked about what things have been like in how, in, in, Whatever. The, the conversation about his father never came up. And again, I never pushed it because I said, I'm here if you want to talk. Um, and then very recently, he texted me a photo of a T-shirt. And it said, uh, L.A. Dodgers, 1988 World Series champions. And he said, look at this old shirt I found while going through my dad's things. And his dad had grown up in L.A. He was a huge Dodgers fan. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, that's like such a cool shirt um and he was like yeah i've been like going through some of my dad's old stuff recently and i found this and it's really cool and i said oh yeah you know i was i was sort of i was thinking about you when when the dodgers were in the playoffs and last year when ucla was making a run at the ncaa and i was just sort of i've been rooting for la teams a little harder i've been rooting for kenny's teams a little bit lately um and he was like, you know, I've been, I've been doing the same thing. I really appreciate it. And it was this really strange, like, like in that case, the con the brief conversation about sports about the Dodgers and the UCLA Bruins was just the little cat, the little opening to be like, okay, we can talk about the fact that your dad died now, um, which we had never done, uh, and. And I can't tell if that's a good thing or a bad thing because, again, I think you're right. Like, I would want to be able to just be able to talk about anything with my closest friends. Uh, but there is that little hesitancy of, like, well, I don't, you know, I don't know if that's the kind of friendship we have. I kept, I kept saying to when people say, oh, if you talk to Abe, I'd be like, oh, I've talked to him. Not really about that. But I know he has other people in his life that he has those conversations with. 
and I kept thinking, like, is that is that really good? Is it normal to just have like this? You know, this is what our friendship is, and it's not this other thing, or should it be? Uh, as lifelong friends, is it, are, are we? Is something missing in that? Um, in that we couldn't just openly, or I couldn't openly just express that to him. Um, and so, but in that sense, I appreciated that the LA Dodgers were there <laughs> as this little like whether it for whether it's good or bad or nonsense that this is a hard conversation for us. Uh, I'm really glad that we have this easy conversation that is able to then take us to the con to to. And I'm saying us, this easy conversation that, that I have been able to use to get to sort of say the things that I hadn't said to him. Um, and so in that sense, it's more than just the meaningless small talk. The meaningless small talk was there. And I think you're right. It is, it is a weird song and dance, well, but well, I did appreciate that. Yeah. It's such a useful shared language, it sounds like. Yeah, I just, it's like, that's also part of why I, I don't know if this is exclusively straight male thing because i when i was like 16 uh i had <laughs> i thought i was real i was really deep uh i went through a very like art school person phase um and at one point i was i was i would just say to all my friends god i wish we could just cut out small talk because i don't get it and i want to get to know people immediately and so I, I put that into action for about six months. And the result is you don't make any friends. Everyone just thinks you're oversharing. Um, because I think the reality of just being a human is that you kind of need that moment where it's like dogs sniff each other's butts. Sniff each other's butts conversation. Um, and I think that kind of conversation comes <laughs> from usually like a shared identity, I think. Um so, so when you really don't have anything in common with someone, you're or you perceive that. Uh, I think your fallback is weather. Um, but when you think you do have something in common with someone, you'll fall to that because, for whatever reason. So I, I, I'm kind of with you. I think I've come around finally to the idea that small talk isn't like a necessary evil. It's really just fine. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and I think I mean. Sports are just, like, one example, but, like you said, like, shared identities and interests can, like, create those kinds of easy, easy things to talk about, which, when there are harder things to talk about, are very useful, it seems. Yeah, yeah. That being said, I feel like a lot of people, including men and uh, people that were assigned male at birth to talk a lot about how male friendships are substantially different from female friendships and it's like you have less emotional something um but do i think that it that relates to sports viewership probably um but i do think you know one facet of sports is providing the common a common talking topic but i do think another facet is that's one of the few ways that men can feel anything which is why I think a lot of UFC viewership is male. Because I think the reason why Chris Pratt shows up to those title fights is because he doesn't feel anything. He doesn't feel anything. <laughs> that. <laughs> if if yeah. I can also, on that note, share a uh, 
slightly funnier. Um, and I recently went to a uh, Chicago Bulls game. Um, it was my first time seeing a real Bulls game. Um, oh, cool. It was very fun. Um, and basketball is one of the – I have maybe seen one live basketball game, like, in my life. Like, I much more have been to baseball games or football games. Um, and it was really exciting. And I went with uh, – You went to more baseball games than basketball games and football games? What's wrong with you? What's <laughs> – What's wrong with me is that, well, I can't, I can't explain the baseball. I guess it's just because Fenway Park is so iconic. Uh, but football, we happened to have a couple of friends who were season ticket holders, and once every, like, three or four years, we would be able to get our hands on, like, a ticket to a Patriots game. Um, but I know that there's no defense, but the point is, I was very excited to go. I was with these uh, three friends, one of which I knew very well, uh, the other two I didn't know quite as well. And we had gotten these tickets for free. But as a result, we were seated, not four in a row, but two, and then two directly <laughs> in front of us on the next row. And the guy that I was seated next to was one of the guys I didn't know as well. And the game's going on, and it's really fun. We're having a blast. Uh, the Bulls are losing for most of it. But then in the fourth quarter, they start making this incredible run. They're making this incredible comeback. And with every basket, the crowd is getting more and more hyped and more and more hyped. They're starting to celebrate more and more and more um, to the point where every shot is coming with this ecstatic, jubilant celebration. And this strange phenomenon started to occur between the guy sitting next to me, where after every basket, it felt like we both had the impulse that we should hug in celebration. <laughs> but we didn't know each other very well. And so every time the ball would go in, we'd both stand up, we'd put our arms up, the two guys sitting in front of us would turn and hug, and then we would turn and sort of like pat each other's arms. <laughs> like really like, whoa! <laughs> Because there was this strange barrier where it's like, we, we, well, we don't know, we can't hug, but we both feel this impulse to be like, ah, I need to touch somebody, I'm so excited. And it happened like three or four points in a row where we would stand up and do this very strange arm pat routine, which seemed to be this, <laughs> this awkward straight man nonverbal signal of, I'm very excited and I'm happy that you're excited too, but I just we can't quite hug each other just yet. It's it's Barbara Kruger's intricate rituals. <laughs> it was a, it was a very yeah. intricate yeah. ritual. Well, you know, speaking about intricate ritual, I mean, I mean, I think it's it's hard to see it because it's like a lot of sports are so kind of like heteronormative at this point. But it's like when people go out to football games, isn't that drag, honey? Like, you're putting face makeup on, you're painting your whole body a different <laughs> color, you're you're bringing out shiny pom-poms and things. Like, that's a, it's a ritual, <laughs> it's theater, it's performance, and yeah, I mean, we, I think we let straight men have that, I guess, sometimes. But I have to say, people talk about uh, things like alcohol and drugs being social lubricants, uh, but I think, I mean, I think it's because they put you in situations that you wouldn't normally be within, like, a stranger on the street. And I think sports do that, too, um, where it's, like, you wouldn't necessarily normally end up drinking next to someone that you met on the street at, like, 3 p.m. on a Sunday yelling at the top of your lungs. But here you are. Um, yeah. Is there, like, a woman equivalent to that? I'm trying to think of that now, and it's like, ah, uh, maybe not. I don't, I don't think there's anything at the same scale. I don't think so, because I kind of was thinking earlier that I don't think 
women could have quite the same desire for like stakes possibly because i think historically women have been relegated to being kind of like background players domestic players so that it's like there's not really a culminating event so i don't know i think kind of like socio-culturally we women aren't as conditioned to want like a like a the performance, a culminating event, a final battle, a boss, and I think men kind of do, because I guess men had to fight wars and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get that from video games, too, which are also a male-dominated pastime hobby. Oh, because, and that is so apparent, because I play video games so wrong. Um, I've recently been getting into this online MMORPG that I played as a kid, because I'm very nostalgic about it, and I noticed, like, I think, like, when you go on YouTube and you watch people do runs of these games, it's like, how do I get this item, and how do I, like, defeat this- and I'm just off completing really completely irrelevant side quests, because I think it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I treat every video game as a sandbox game. (laughs) I will spend as long as possible on, like, character creation, and I love building houses in The Sims. It is my favorite thing to do. I love character creation so much. So, yeah. And, like, yeah, but back to, like, the emotional intimacy that men have through sports. I don't think it's a bad thing. Like, I'm glad they have that. Like, if a father and a son are gonna, you know, only connect about their favorite sports team, I'm glad they're connecting about that. Because otherwise, you know, maybe they wouldn't. And I think it's, yeah. you know, it's definitely, like, a wide societal issue. But I don't think that, like, I don't think it's going to change. And I don't think that's an awful thing. Yeah. I don't know. It is. I don't know how I feel. Because you were talking about one man standing alone. And I pictured him in an, a public park uh, eating hot dogs as quickly as possible. Um, I don't know. Like, that's nice in a way. And I'm glad he does it. And I hope it gives him enjoyment. <laughs> Um, I think a lot of great things have come about that way, um, with just people getting really obsessed with one thing. Um, and sport is basically just when you kind of make that on a bigger scale and venerate it. Um, but I, I do think I want more people doing like the little small scale things to get, uh, we shouldn't only care when it's on a larger scale, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I like it when individuals just do odd things by themselves well thank you so much matt for appearing as a guest and a a, a guest expert guest expert um <laughs> we appreciate it yeah and thank you for listening to this episode nine of tepid takes of tepid takes <laughs> we will see you i hope you have a good uh holiday and we will and see we you will... someday yes soon hopefully If we can manage to work out our schedule. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye. Good night. Bye.